Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films, and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we're getting into the holiday spirit. And our guest is my friend Gary Goldstein, a prolific screenwriter, author, and award-winning playwright, who in addition to writing the sisters' dramedy April, May, and June, which received five Broadway World nomination, nominations, has written a bushel of Christmas films, including the Hallmark favorites Hitched for the Holidays and Lights, Camera, Christmas, pictured here. Along the way, he's also been a Los Angeles Times film critic. This is a guy who knows movies from the inside out. And we're going to talk about the best Christmas films of all time. Welcome, Gary. Hey, Steve. Great to be here. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. So I, I do this with all my guests. Uh, I have to do it with you. Going back to when you were little, did you grow up in a movie-going family? Um, not really. I mean, I went to the movies a lot as a kid, and I grew up at a time where people went to the movie theaters all the time. You know, it was a regular thing to do. Um, but I, I I wouldn't say they were, you know, that actively movie going, but we went to a lot of movies. I mean, I just remember seeing tons of movies as a kid and growing up and as a teenager um, and often would go with my parents until I could drive. Uh, so they went pretty regularly. My mother was more of a movie goer than my father, but, uh, but we all went a lot. And I remember the best thing was I grew up with kind of, I, I, I don't know that my parents were so uh, open-minded, but they I did they did take me to a lot of R-rated movies at a time where like R-rated movies really had a lot of nudity in them. And so so I got to see all this stuff. And occasionally, occasionally, uh, you know, I, my father would say to my mother, you know, is this movie for him? You know, but, and I would protest and say, I can handle it. I can watch it, you know, and I did. <laughs> and the rest is history. My my mother was a very ardent film goer, and when she and she also spent a lot of time at the beauty parlor. That was her social center. And when she heard that shampoo was opening, she said, "We've got to go see this movie, Steve. It's my movie." So we go to the Bruin Theater in Westwood, and the first scene in Shampoo is um, is what's her name? I'm forgetting her name now. Um, the, Goldie Hawn, not Goldie Hawn. Billy uh, Christie. Who was the other one? Billy Christie. No, not her. Lee Grant. Lee Grant. Lee Grant. Uh, Lee Grant. Lee Grant. Yeah. Lee Grant. Yeah. Lee Grant is being pummeled by Warren Beatty, right. and right. you're hearing all the sounds of passion. And my mother is actually putting her hands over my ears. <laughs> <laughs> and I just crazy. What was, by the way, what was your theater, your main theater that you would go to the movies, and in what city was it? Well, I grew up on Long Island in a town called Valley Stream on the south shore of Long Island. And we had just tons of theaters into, you know, single screen, mostly single screen theaters at the time. And, you know, we always went, waited until the, you know, they were second run. So they were cheaper. So we'd see like double features for a dollar or two dollars or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a theater in Valley Stream called the Bel Air, which which had which was the the dollar theater or the dollar fifty theater forever. And it was a nice, very nice theater. And they always had double features. Uh, theater in Lindbrook, Long Island called Studio One I went to a lot the Green Acres Theater on, in Valley Stream if anybody out there is from Long Island they'll remember, they'll know Green Acres home of the Green Acres Shopping Center which is a great big single screen theater um, we had the Sunrise Drive-In which was like I think one of the first drive-ins ever made ever built in the country and that was in Valley Stream also so yeah we had plenty plenty to choose from what would you say was the inspiration to become a writer? When did you first begin to realize that you had some ability? Oh, well, I I, uh, um, I, I started off wanting to be a film critic. I want to be a film reviewer, and I, and I reviewed films from as far back as my high school newspaper. They, they let me do it, and nobody else wanted the job. Um, but I, I, I love doing that. I wrote for the, the college, my college paper. I was a, 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 like kind of an entertainment editor for the paper. Um, and uh, and I wanted to do that professionally when I graduated from college, but it was kind of a hard, there was a lot of film, great film criticism out then and a lot of outlets, but not a great way for me at the time, I was living in Boston, uh, to actually, I felt, make a living doing it. So I ended up getting into movie publicity. I got a job in movie publicity, and that kind of took me away from writing for a while, and I worked, had various jobs until 
Uh, sort of like my late 20s, I, I just decided, you know what, I really want to go back to my first love. I want to be a writer. And I decide and I and I, you know, I fortunately had made enough money as a publicist to sort of you know, have a little cushion until I started making money as a writer. And I started off writing episodic television and started to get uh, this was at a time where there were fewer there were fewer networks, but way more shows. Uh, so sort of like uh, 22, 23 episode of season shows being made, comedies, dramas. And I kind of specialized in comedies and and got a lot of uh, freelance episodes and things like that. And then kind of segued into screenwriting and, you know, kind of expanded from there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I I point back to two things. I always point back to two things. Um, I was on a plane. It was the late 80s. I was on a, an airplane and I was reading a book called The Accidental Tourist by uh, Ann Tyler, which remains, which was a great movie, remains one of my all time favorite books. And I was just reading it and I just I was like, man, I just I want to write a book like that. I want to be able to create something as, as incredible and uh, great, such a great story and such great characters. And at the same time, around the same time, the show 30 something was on and I loved the show 30 something. And I just thought it was, you know, great television, great characters, amazing writing. And I wrote a spec 30 something script just because I knew the show and I wanted to. And it was like, you know what, I, I, maybe I can do this, you know? And uh, and that was actually one of the first writing samples that started getting me some work. Um, so it was the kind of, I, I always point back to those two things. Really, I had to leave my job, you know, it was like a good job and I had to leave it and all that. But I really believed in writing. I really wanted to get back to that. I kind of wanted more of a writer's life than the executive's life that I, that I had, which was, um, you know, I think it was, I learned a lot, it was very valuable. I learned a lot from it, but I, it wasn't as soul satisfying enough at that point. And, uh, you know, I sort of took two step, one step forward and two steps back until I, you know, sort of caught up. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think when you have the writing gene or the writing desire, and hopefully you're decent at it, uh, you know, like any craft, any art, you know, something you really want to be able to do. And if you can make a living at it, some kind of living at it, that's great. You know, that's always the hard part. Well, you and I are definitely weren't were on parallel tracks because yes. I was a publicist for 25 years. Right. Also had the same feeling that this wasn't satisfying enough. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, Kirk Douglas's line in in Harm's Way, the great Otto Preminger war movie, where Patricia Neal is asking him if he likes working on this island, which is kind of a backwater island. He says. Oh, it's like working in a filling station, watching the cars go by. Well, I felt the same way about being a publicist. Yeah. While the film yeah. was flying through Showtime, I said, I got to get involved in doing this. Yeah. No, absolutely. So you have, um, in addition to all of the other writing you do, you seem to have a, a very good talent at creating Christmas movies. And I know Hallmark has tapped into you very yeah. nicely for that. So in your world, what makes a good Christmas movie? Well, it's a great question because it's really, it's changed. It's kind of evolved quite a bit. Um, the very first Christmas movie I wrote was actually a Christmas and Hanukkah movie called Hitched for, Hitched for the Holidays. And I wrote it as a spec screenplay and it almost sold as a, as a feature film and it, it came very close and it didn't. And uh, X number of years later, um, when I started doing other films for Hallmark, I showed it to them and they were like, oh, this is great. We're starting to do more holiday movies and all that. And uh, and it was a, a comedy. People, I'm sure people out there have seen it. It's, it's kind of a perennial. Um, and it's about uh, two people who pretend to be, you know, it's the old dating, pretending to be dating Bruce. It was kind of probably one of the early ones that did that. But a couple pretend to be dating um, to uh, to get through the holidays and satisfy their families. And of course, they fall for each other. One is Jewish, one is is Catholic, and they have to pretend to be each other's religion for various reasons. And, you know, hilarity ensues. Um, and uh, so that came out really well. And then the whole Christmas movie genre really, really expanded. So I ended up um, being asked to write a few films for, for Hallmark and some other, other networks too, uh, some Christmas movies. And um, uh, most of them were, were made. Um, and then uh, I actually optioned a book a number of years ago called Mr. 365 um, by Ruth Clampett, uh, which I really loved. I thought it was a great idea. It's about a guy who celebrates Christmas every day of the year um, and ends up on a reality TV show as as the man who celebrates Christmas every every year, every day of the year. Um, it was ultimately, it took a while, but I, after I optioned the book, but it was ultimately made as a streaming film and, and then was purchased by Lifetime and shows up on Amazon all the time. Um, called Mr. 365. It actually goes under the title Forever Christmas also. 
Um, and I adapted a book for Hallmark called Angel of Christmas. Well, the book was called The Christmas Angel, but the movie is Angel of Christmas, uh, which I love and I think is just a really well-made movie and you know really well-acted. Um, and that was, I don't know, 2016, somewhere in there. Um, and then uh, and then I did other ones. Um, did, did something for, for a lifetime called Rediscovering Christmas. Um, and then last year I did Lights, Camera, Christmas, which I pitched uh, to well, I pitched to a production company who really liked it. And then they took it to Hallmark, who, who really liked it. And it was really the first movie about the making of a Christmas movie and a romantic comedy within the making of an actual Christmas movie. Um, and it came I, out. I, really... I, I put up a still for it because I yes. thought it was an intriguing premise. So what yeah. is it, what's the actual premise? It's, it actually goes behind the scenes on the making of a Christmas movie. Well, it's about a, 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 a Christmas film that's that's um, uh, stars the King of Christmas, uh, King of Christmas movies, uh, and played by John Brotherton. Um, and uh, uh, he goes to the small town with the crew, and he ends up. Uh, he ends up be, uh, sort of befriending uh, this woman in town who runs a, a local clothing store. She also designs clothes on the side. It's, her, it's kind of her hobby passion. Um, and uh, in typical in typical movie fashion, uh, the customer on the film doesn't show up uh, and they need to bring in Carrie to uh, the, the character Carrie to just at the last minute to become the temporary costumer for the movie. And of course she's great and everybody loves her and she ends up because, you know, going on full time on the film um, and letting her mother handle the store. And, and she just can't, she's not a Christmas movie fan. She's not a big fan of Christmas, knows nothing about this King of Christmas actor, uh, but he's like, he's got a huge ego and he's really charming and all of that. And of course, little by little, the walls come down between her and him and, and, and uh, you know, romance, romance ensues. Uh, it's a really, really fun movie, and the actors were great and very well directed and, and uh, produced. And I'm very proud of it. It was a real, real successful film last year. Um, so yeah. you're saying that Christmas movies have evolved, but it still seems to be that for the most part, Christmas movies, at least in the Hallmark universe, are romantic comedies. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of romantic comedies, but there are also some dramatic dramatic films. I haven't written them, but there are a number of, of dramatic, kind of, kind of straight dramas that show up on the Hallmark Movies and Mysteries channel, uh, which also shows comedies too. But uh, yeah, they they branch out. I mean, look, some of the great Christmas movies of the past are are dramatic films uh, or a dramatic film set at Christmas. Uh, and um, you know, one of them, you may remember this movie. I was just thinking about it when I was thinking about doing this podcast. There was a movie that came out in the set all the way back in the 70s with Shirley Jones and Lloyd Bridges. It was a made-for-TV movie when they made those 90-minute great movies of the week called Silent Night, Lonely Night. And it was about these two, I think they were widow and widower, maybe, or they were pretty young at the time, but I think they may have been widow and widower who meet around Christmas and fall in love and have this relationship. It's just a beautiful film and they're very serious, you know, a romantic drama. Um, and, uh, you know, there have always been those movies, but I think Hallmark found a, a way, and as did eventually Lifetime and even Netflix and, and, and uh, Hulu and other, other places that, um, oh, it's a wonderful life, uh, uh, who make Christmas movies, to kind of dig in on the, you know, zero in on the, just the joy, uh, the joy of Christmas, the fun of Christmas, the, the craziness that happens around Christmas time, some of the emotional craziness that happens. Uh, you know, the whole idea of people who love Christmas, who are don't love Christmas, how you make somebody love Christmas, um, all of that stuff. And romance is often at the center of it. And it's a pretty good, I think it's a pretty good model. What I will say is that over the years, I think how Chris, uh, like for example, Lights, Camera, Christmas, they were looking to do something a little bit different. And I came up with this, this the basic idea, which was different, but then we came up with this framing device where the movie is told in flashback the production of the movie is told in flashback from the premiere of the film that's being shown in a in a theater in a theatrical you know the movie theater with the whole cast doing a Q&A and each person somebody everybody from the audience asks somebody from the cast or crew a question they answer the question and it flashes back to that moment in the making of the movie and it's all kind of kind of consecutive um, so there was a little different. So they, they as, as, other, as other networks, have been looking to just find different ways of telling stories, telling stories and, and opening up the universe a little bit. Much more, much more diversity. I have my, a movie that I co-wrote that's going to be on December 17th called Friends and Family Christmas is about two women who fall, in, who fall for each other over Christmas. And it's the first time they've done a, the last year they did 
um, the first Christmas movie with two gay men as the characters as the lead. And this is the first two gay female characters that they that they've done as the lead in a Christmas movie. So that's, you know, it's very progressive and 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 uh, authentic. And, and that was great. Um, so, yeah, there's different changes, you know, but I think, you know, there'll always be the kind of more more traditional, wacky, fun, romantic comedies. Sure. You know, well, I, I hate to say this, but it's been 77 years since the granddaddy of Christmas movies, It's a Wonderful Life, came out. Crazy, right? Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? It is. It really is, yeah. I mean, um, and I know there was this whole period when it was the copyright lapsed and everybody was broadcasting. I think the copyright has been restored. But uh, I have to say that this is one of my all-time favorite movies, period. Yeah, yeah, it is. And everybody, people love the movie and it's a perennial and it's on every year and people watch it all the time and, and all of that. But, you know, I think James, Jimmy Stewart really is, is the key to it. I mean, everybody was great in it, but Jimmy Stewart really, he became, he was, he became iconic from this and he's the character that, you know, we, 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 we aspire to be um, and set against the, the, the what if stories about Christmas, you know, going all the bad. I remember as a kid watching the, I guess it was like the old British movie of, of the Christmas Carol of Christmas of a Christmas Carol. What was his name? Alistair Sim, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, it was like the '30s or something. And yeah, you know, they just ran it every year. So as a kid, I watched it, and you know, and whenever it was, and, and like I found it very spooky. And I remember watching it a lot. Um, and uh, uh, you know, so they've been around a, a long time. Scrooge, certainly the Scrooge stories, and and the different movies about Scrooge, and the Bill Murray movie Scrooge, and all of that. What's interesting about Jimmy Stewart, he had just come back from the war. Mm-hmm. And he was suffering from PTSD. Most people don't realize that Jimmy Stewart became a squadron commander of, of uh, bombers in World War II. He was based in England. He saw a lot of death and destruction, and it had an effect on him. And he didn't really want to come back to work uh, on this picture. From what I hear... Of all people, the guy who played Mr. Potter, Lionel Barrymore, convinced him to do this. I guess this project was originally developed at another studio uh, with um, Perry Grant potentially playing. Right. I remember I read that just recently. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, and uh, but uh, Frank Capra, this is Frank Capra's favorite movie. He said it many times. And one thing I found interesting, the, the um, inspiration for George Bailey apparently came from the founder of the Bank of Italy, A.P. Giannini, uh, who later created the Bank of America, because apparently Giannini, other than being a banker, he started to provide loans to uh, people in the middle classes. So it was a big deal. So I guess the whole thing with the building and loan and George Bailey's father helping out the, 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 the needy, was something that was inspired by something Capra was writing or reading about. Um, I um, I didn't realize that the movie was nominated for five Oscars, including Jimmy Stewart's performance. But I think the problem with It's a Wonderful Life that year, it ran up against the best years of our lives, which of course was the best picture of the year and beat it in all five categories. Uh, so it, it was nominated for best picture then? It was nominated for best picture, Jimmy Stewart, uh, uh, Frank Capra, sound and editing. Cool. Uh, now, do you, do you know if the movie was successful when it came out, or has it become more successful over time? Well, according to IMDb Pro, the movie cost $3.7 million in 1946. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. And yeah. this was the, one, the debut feature for Frank Capra's company, which he formed with William Wyler and one other director, I forget which one. And uh, the movie only brought in 3.3 million in rentals that year. So it was a loss, unfortunately. And then the company Liberty Films went out of business shortly thereafter. Um, I find it interesting um, on the AFI, American Film Institute's uh, list of the most inspirational films of all time, it is number one. That's great. Not surprising, but but it's certainly something that oh, you talk about. Seventy-seven years. It's built over the course of seventy-seven years. It's like the Wizard of Oz or you know, anything that's been seen, you know, constantly for all of that time. It becomes more of a legend than it even was to begin with. 
I mean, you got to remember Zuzu's petals. <laughs> and I was interested. Another trivial fact is that the name Zuzu came from a brand of ginger snaps at that time. Uh, and at one uh, point in the end of the movie, uh, Jimmy Stewart, I guess when he goes back to see her in her sick bed because she's getting over cold, he calls her my little ginger snap. Uh, <laughs> so there was a little, a little inside information there. Uh, uh, the movie was based on a 1944 short story called The Greatest Gift. And um, one other thing I found interesting in the behind the scenes part, Bedford Falls, that enormous town, you know, which with three or four blocks of streets and all those storefronts was a giant film set. They built every one of those storefronts. Wow. Well, speaking of Bedford Falls, that was the name of the production company that that Edswick and Marshall Herskovitz, who created 30 something, had together during that time it was Bedford, Bedford Falls Entertainment. So obviously we know where that came from. The um I'm forgetting the name of the actor who played Clarence the Angel. Uh, mm -hmm. I forget his name, but he was just so, everybody's so wonderful in this movie. Uh, I have to, I just, I, I had to start off our discussion with that. The other, the other funny moment, I guess, when, when Jimmy Stewart's dancing with uh, Donna Reed in the high school gymnasium, uh, one of the guys who doesn't like the fact that he's stolen Jimmy, uh, uh, Donna Reed away from pulls the handle and the floor opens up, as you recall, and everybody go, dives into the swimming pool. The guy who pulls the handle was Carl Alfalfa Switzer. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Do you have a cowlick at the time? The cowlick, uncredited. Little so I, I thought that, I thought, so that was really funny. So another film I thought we could talk a little bit about, it's another one of my personal favorites. Yeah. Which, Miracle uh, on 34th Street. Miracle on 34th Street, which just, um, you know, I can't say enough about this. It was probably one of the first Christmas movies I ever saw. What are your memories? Uh, I, you know what? I know I saw it as a kid. I don't, I, I remember kind of sitting down with my, my parents or my mother or something, one of them to, to watch it. And they had seen it and sort of grew up with it and all that. Um, and, uh, I remember sort of not getting it. I was so young. I remember sort of not getting it. And I'd seen it. And then I've seen it over the over the years. And and I just, you know, actually seeing it, knowing who Natalie Wood became and loving her as an actress, you know, it, 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 the, the older I got and the more I knew about her, uh, the post West Side Story years and all of that, you know, I think I appreciated a lot, appreciated it a lot more. Uh, but it is a story that also has had a lot of has has had a lot of its own imitators over time and of course they did make a remake uh uh whatever year that was um and i think i don't know did they ever do more than one remake of it i think they just did the one with mara wilson playing the yeah. natalie wood character i think yeah. richard attenborough played uh, who was a perfect idea yeah. for yeah because with his white bird he doesn't only do jurassic park he does christmas right. <laughs> right. Well, this actor, what was his name? Edmund Edmund Gwynn? Edmund Gwynn. And I knew of him because uh, actually seven years after he made this movie, and this is 1947, uh, he did a science fiction movie about giant ants called Them. You mm -hmm. probably remember the title. And uh, I remembered him that. And just recently in catching up on movies, I saw him in a movie uh, with Paul Henry called Of Human Bondage. Mm -hmm. played a doctor and he had a great reputation although he wasn't the first choice to play Chris Kringle the first choice was his cousin Cecil Kellaway oh okay Cecil Kellaway who went on famously to play the priest and guess who's coming to dinner right 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 and of course uh, had a kind of uh, impish quality as well but he he paved the way for Edmund Gwen and uh there's just so many wonderful facets of this. Apparently, they filmed it at the beginning of the movie. They filmed it at the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. And Edmund Gwen actually portrayed Santa in the parade that year. So that's really him in front of huh. the huge crowds, which I thought was funny. It was so freezing on the set when they made that. Apparently, the only people who got lucky were John Payne and Natalie Wood, who got to watch it from her bedroom window or her living room window. John Payne's an interesting character, good actor, solid actor, big Fox contract player in the 40s and 50s. I later remember him on a TV series called The Restless Gun. It was one of those 1950s 
Western questions. series, but he was one of the first people to option a James Bond novel. Really? Yeah, he optioned Moonraker long before anybody knew anything much about Bond. Didn't get made, but he's in that trivia of one of the first to realize that Bond could be something. Obviously, John Payne, Payne would have liked to have played Bond. So did he option that book before Dr. No, before the, the early James Bond movies? Yes, wow. I think mid-50s, uh, about the same time that Gregory Ratoff acquired the rights to Casino Royale, which mm. he later saw uh, sold to um, the agent uh, Charles Feldman, and they made the spoofy James Bond movie in 67 with Woody Allen mm -hmm. and Peter Sellers. But... Um, yeah, no, John Payne was great. And of course, Maureen O'Hara, you can't get any better than Maureen O'Hara. Right, there are just right. so many moments in that movie that just bring you to emotion. I mean, the first time the little Dutch girl sits on his lap and her, her guardian says, well, she doesn't speak any English and Chris starts speaking in Dutch. It's just yeah. an amazing. Because of course he can, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> um. I got I got to put up another title, but you probably had some titles you wanted to talk about. Are there ones that you wanted to mention? Yeah, there are a couple. I actually made some notes. Um, uh, well, you know, uh, the the holiday, which is which is which is a more recent movie than Nancy Meyer Myers movie, uh, which in which uh, um, uh, with um, in which uh, Kate Winslet and. Uh, um, uh, Who's the actress? Uh, Cameron Diaz switch houses and fall in love over Christmas. You know, that's I love that movie. I think it's a great movie. And then Love Actually, of course, is is like a. I know there. I know there are a couple of like issues with Love Actually now. You know, kind of in terms of maybe some things they wouldn't portray today. I'm not sure, but I I still think it's a a, a really wonderful movie with a phenomenal cast, all set at Christmas. Those those two are you know two of my more more recent favorite movies. Um, at that movie I mentioned, the TV movie Silent Night, Lonely Night, I think is really good. I've seen that a few times over, over the course of time. I just watched a movie last night, a new Netflix movie, which is really not a Christmas movie per se, even though it's it tries to be about Christmas, called uh, called Family Switch, uh, in with um, uh, where in which the parents switch bodies just before Christmas with their kids and have to get, and they each have to get out of out of uh, you know a lot of pre-holiday predicaments, but it's kind of Christmas is kind of wedged into it. But it's kind of a funny movie. I, I thought it was kind of funny um, in parts. What, what, um, what is it called? It's called the Family Switch, Family. and it just, just just dropped on Netflix. Yeah. Well, getting getting back to Love Actually, which I I have become a devotee. I mean, I I just um, and I find it interesting. I read, and of course, I have a picture up of uh, Hugh Grant doing his dance, and apparently. Hugh Grant did not want to do this dance. He mm -hmm. said a prime minister would never do that. But to me, he stole the show with that dance. Right, right. He starts wiggling and gets into the mood of it. It's one of the great moments. The thing I love about Love Actually, everybody's great. Yeah, there and it's a great cast. You know, and then you look back on the cast now who was in it, and it's just like, you know, it's just one, one star after another. Um, and uh, the kid who played the the kid in it, the actor who played the kid in it, has gone on to have a you know a very good adult career too. Um, um, yeah. Gangster, yeah, he, yeah. he's very popular from uh, from uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, apparently, his original character was a gymnast before he became a drummer, but they lost that in the storytelling. We never see him as gymnast, but he's flying through that airport at the end, jumping over turnstiles. And you realize that there are some gymnastic yeah. moves there. I also find it interesting. I read that um, uh, Richard Curtis, who's a marvelous director. Right. I love Richard Curtis's work. He's, Great writer. He seems to really love American pop culture because he always seems to bring it into his stories. It's like, you know, it's England. These are English people, et cetera. But let's bring in some American pop culture. I'll never forget uh going through the the saturday market in notting hill for the julia roberts movie and they pass all the things for sale and the camera stops for a second on beavis and butthead <laughs> perfect but uh, oh. apparently, apparently he um he kept on saying i want a laura linney part for the character who falls in love with her co-worker and who has the crazy brother um he said, I want a Laura Linney type. And they they couldn't find anybody. So the, the casting director in frustration finally said, why don't we just get Laura Linney? She was available. 
It's like, did you ever see the the stage show, the stage musical of Love Actually? They show it. They they, they perform it every year here in L.A. in Beverly Hills um, at the um, uh, at in, in Beverly Hills, the old post office the theater that used to be the old post office there. And uh, it's a really good production, and it's 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 a musical version of it where they actually sing the songs that are in the in the movie itself um, and recreate it. It's really uh, it's uh, it's really fun. Um, and I think they do it every year. It's on, I'm sure it's on oh, this year. I, I definitely Maybe in other cities, I don't know. There was, I think in 17, there was a a little sequel, a short sequel that they released with all the characters involved in what they were doing the next. The thing, the thing about that movie also is that, the, as you point out, it's a great script. It, everything uh, coalesces and lines up so perfectly uh, the way that... Uh, all the little subplots, you know, they kind of just do so well at the end. And it, it's it's a, just a big favorite of mine. Um, uh, I watch it as often as I can. Now, let me put up another one here that um, that is very popular. I'm alone, yeah. And I think the, uh, I think the the idea of the like you said, sometimes Christmas movies became different genres. And here's the. Christmas movie of the Kid in Jeopardy, obviously as a comedy. Right. Uh, apparently, um, the uh, I think the Warner Brothers got this first, and they didn't want to do it, and they passed it on, I think, to Universal that eventually did it. But a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, you know, then you look at a movie like like Home Alone, you say, well, it could the, the you know the the premise of it could totally work not at Christmas. I mean, the fact that it was Christmas. Add an extra layer, and and you know they were able to weave in so that you know the the bad guys you know had, had there was a Christmas theme there, and and the fact that the family was going away for Christmas, but it could have been any time, you know, really. So the fact that it was Christmas was a good idea because it was it gave it kind of a a bonus audience. Um, but I don't remember if the sequels took place at Christmas or not, um, but this one definitely did, and was a huge hit. Obviously, a huge hit. In fact, Macaulay Culkin just got his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Right, and married to Catherine O'Hara presented it to him. So, and married to Brenda Song, who uh, worked on the show. Our mutual friend Billy Reback wrote for uh, "Sweet Life of Zach and Cody." Um, it's interesting. Um, I was just what was I going to say about uh, Home Alone? I lost my train of thought. Um, but Macaulay Culkin. Uh, well, then, of course, Home Alone was a John Hughes movie, and. I got to work with John Hughes when I was a publicist. I was the unit publicist on Pretty in Pink. Oh, okay. So I got to work with John, and John had a whole. John, John, sadly, is no longer with us. He was. He, I think, we lost him very young. But John, very young. John had a great ability to get into the the minds of kids, whether yeah. teenagers, like in the Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles, and then Macaulay Culkin's head. And I guess he featured him in Uncle Buck, and that inspired him to put him in in mm -hmm. alone. But a lot yeah, of and again, great run, great run during uh, during the eighties and nineties. Um, died really way too young. Yeah, made a major contribution though, especially to start movies about young younger people, which is great. Right, right. Well, it's interesting um, when you think about Home Alone. As screenwriters, we're always trying to adhere to logic because we know that if somebody doesn't like the script they'll probably point out to a big logic lapse and of course the key to home alone is that a family forget forgets bring one of their kids on a on a on a european vacation i think they were going to europe or were they going to new york i can't remember now i want to say new york new york so so the idea of forgetting one of your kids just seems impossible but obviously it works in this now i i I never left a kid home, but I once left my suitcase home. <laughs> my I had my two kids and my wife, and I made sure all their suitcases were on the car and getting everything to the airport. But I left mine in my bedroom, and I, I didn't even think about it. So we arrive in New York, you know, and of course, I don't have. We were on our way to a wedding. It when was, did you realize that though? Uh, when the uh, suitcases were coming down the the show. Oh God! It took you that long to remember? Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, the, the whole idea of a parent, uh, especially a mother, leaving her her little son behind 
somebody would have noticed that within like the first 30 seconds, you know, but uh, if without that idea, there'd be no movie. So there right. it is. And it's true. And it's like, if I, if I bumped into Hugh Grant and I remind him what he said about dancing in love, actually, I heard you didn't like it, but God, Hugh, it's one of my favorite moments. It, it was an entertaining moment. Screw the logic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think if we depended upon logic for movies and for the success of movies, I think we'd have way fewer movies because as a, a writer, you know, you, you, you everything, you try to make things as logical and, and realistic within the world that you're creating as possible. But sometimes you just do have to, you know, kind of put those puzzle pieces together in a way that only you can do it for a, a movie. In real life, it may not happen, but we accept it in a movie just because if it's entertaining and makes us laugh or whatever, or and and like in the case of Home Alone, becomes the kind of the the engine for the for the entire movie. Sometimes we have to do that. Um, you know, it's I, a wonderful. It's not a very logical movie. You know, I mean, so so many anything with anything magical to it. You know, you have to put kind of put logic at the door. But you know, we want to be entertained, and that's all a part of it. Well, you know, I, I'm on a, a big mission to try to encourage filmmakers, including myself as I'm writing, to write more entertaining shows. I think that Hollywood is in a bit of a rough when it comes to, a rut when it comes to movies these days. There are some terrific dramatic movies. Don't get me wrong, but are they entertaining? And I think that part of the problem is is that we've forgotten a little bit about how to be showmen or show women or show persons just to to bring people to a, a theater to entertain them and god knows we're very good now at presenting the dark side of life for yeah. a few years ago it was all those dystopian future movies you know the terminators on up and i'd like to see more entertainment involved and you know look, even looking at the holiday films for this season and of course there's some very good ones but many of them are very dark right well you know it used to be when 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 theatrical films were very big and you know and there was no streaming and there or, or whatever and there was no even before uh you know vcrs and all of that you know every there'd be a whole string of movies that would come out of christmas time sometimes they'd be about christmas often not but they you know they would be the big, big year end movies and there were always a bunch of you know comedies family films you know things that if you, there was some more serious bigger movies but there used to be more like it's just straight entertainment and those movies are just not made much anymore theatrically anyway they end up uh, on streaming or like yeah you know, for example this um Great Christmas movie, the the uh, family switch um, with Jennifer Garner and Ed Helms. I was telling you about. I mean, that's it's not it's it could years ago it could have been a theatrical film, you know, and and maybe might have done some business, you know. But nowadays, all those kinds of things they do tend to end up on 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 as streaming films, you know, cable films. Listen, Hallmark makes forty some odd movies, Christmas movies a year, and airs them between their two channels. Not to mention all the other movies. I think there are probably like a hundred and 40, 50 Christmas movies made made all together between all the networks, all the streamers, all of the independent fil films um, every year. That's a lot, you know, and there's an audience for it, but not a theatrical audience. You know, sometimes you do one slips into a theater. Um, but now, you know, we're we're it's a whole other conversation. I don't know if you've ever you've gone over the done, you know, gone over this territory in your in these um podcasts, but uh, you know, the whole idea of what has happened to theatrical movie going. Uh, especially when you grew up, if you're somebody who grew up on going to movie theaters and all of that, and it's a very different situation now, you know, and, and when, if you pulled out all the Marvel movies and all of the, you know, all the special effects films and all the comic book movies and all of that, you know, which seemed to be a good, I don't know, I don't know what the number is, maybe 50% or not more, uh, sequels, you know, of what's made for the theatrical, the initial theatrical release, You'd end up with a whole lot less, you know, and maybe that would open the door for more just straight entertainment. Um, but it's the whole, the whole. I don't know. Again, it's another conversation, but but the whole theatrical movie going experience and the whole structure of it has changed so dramatically, and I think and the product has changed with it. Well, I think that as the points made in uh, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, where Santa Claus is railing against the commercialization of Christmas, that selling making a buck, making a buck, not caring about the uh, customer or the spirit of Christmas also has invaded the film business. The film business yeah. is no longer about seat of the pants. I believe this is a good story filmmaking. It's more like what do the 19 people in marketing and distribution say will make money for the studio. 
And since studios are no longer owned by single people or groups of people, they're owned by corporations, you no longer say, it, maybe it could do well. No, you, that's not good enough anymore. It has to. They have to know that if they spend $247 million to make a Spider-Man sequel, they'll get back a billion five, that kind of thing. Right, as opposed to taking $200 million, making five or six, what is now considered medium-priced films, um, and spreading it out and having more content for your library and making you know some great films that people actually want to see, uh, they're not interested. They're not interested in the base hit. You know, it's all about the home, the international home run, which is fine. And that's but that's but again, it goes back to what people are we used to go to movies to see and what they what they don't go to now. Um, oh, Die Hard. Okay, yes, so the, the unlikely Christmas movie. <laughs> That's the question everybody asks now. Is yeah. die I by the way, I love the way someone augmented this uh still and added the Christmas hat on Bruce. Uh oh, okay. <laughs> oh right. What, yeah, that was not there. What what uh, what's your opinion? Well, I love Die Hard. I mean, I think it's a you know, I think it's a really great action movie. Obviously, you know, there were about four thousand clones of it, uh, you know, after it came out. Die hard on a bus, die, die hard on a plane, die hard on a boat, you know, all of that. Um, it's a great action film. Uh, and Bruce Willis at his peak uh, is is really great. And then he used the, used the, the Fox Tower, the 20th Century Fox Tower, uh, that so many of us around here are familiar with, uh, you know, as, as the uh, the setting, that, that setting toward the end. Um, and, uh, you know, made, really made Bruce Willis a movie star, I guess, uh, you know, after Moonlighting. I don't, he, I guess he did some other films, but this, you know, this was really made him a big, a big movie star. Um, so yeah, and the fact that, that it, there is a Christmas element to it is just kind of a byproduct um but it is still definitely you know considered one of those christmas movies look the movie the movie version of rent the musical rent much of it takes place at christmas and the end of the year and all of that you know i don't consider it a christmas movie but one could so you know if something is set happens to be set at christmas like home alone was or whatever you know it it, it ends up in the pantheon I, I i always remember the music at the end of die hard da 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 Da, 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 da. It's it's very Christmassy. Uh <laughs> they played it, they played into it. You know, they really, they they really, you know, they they sort of they had fun with it at that point. Oh yeah. In fact, uh, I think it was Bruce Willis is staring after he's killed that first terror like not terrorist, he's a thief, because they're not really terrorists, they're just thieves by uh, getting the uh, bearer bonds. But he sees the first terrorist and kills him, and then he sees the little Christmas tree or thing. I guess there's a little and he grabs the piece of paper and and I guess writes on the guy's sweatshirt. Uh, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. That's <laughs> a great moment. It's a great moment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so let's go back to Lights, Camera, Christmas. And tell me, uh, can you talk about, the, you mentioned one picture that's coming out shortly. Uh, what is the title of that? That's called Fr Friends and Family Christmas. Uh, it premieres on. It's actually the last movie to premiere on Hallmark for the Christmas season. So, uh, you know, they, we hopefully we go, we go out on a go out on a high. Uh, and uh, again, it's a story about it. it, it it's about it, the, the theme of it is about found family and the, and the idea of when you move away from your from your hometown to as the case as 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 the case is with the characters. And this is the main character of this movie. She moves away from, you know, a smaller town to Manhattan. She lives in Brooklyn um, and finds herself a whole new circle of, of friends. She's an artist and it's kind of an artist circle of friends. Um, and yet it's the first Christmas she's spending. You know, she's late 20s or whatever, 30. And, and it's the first Christmas she's spending without her parents. And she's an only child. And the parents, you know, they had all these rituals that they love to do. Um, and the parents ultimately can't just can't deal with her not coming home for Christmas. So they go to Brooklyn. So they surprise her in Brooklyn. And it's kind of this clash in a way of the parents coming in and, you know, having in doing, her doing things with the parents and then having to have this whole schedule of events with the, the artist friends and how they how they how it all comes together. But it's really, you know, at, at its root, it's really about how the families that we make. And uh, then there's the the dating ruse in the middle, in the middle of the it's these the, the these two women whose parents set them up, um, uh, the two lead, lead women, uh, they say, okay, we'll just date because we'll just pretend to be dating just to, you know, 
make our parents happy. And of course, you know, there's a spark there and it's, and it's how that all, that all plays out. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a very diverse movie all the way around. It's really, really have to hand it to them, uh, you know, to, to the casting director and Hallmark and, and the production company, you know, for really, um, you know, really uh, presenting a very authentic and very diverse uh, group of actors and characters. You know, I'm really, really proud of that. Now, they, did you did you pitch it as two women in a relationship? Uh, yes, I, I pitched it. Um, uh, the producer I worked with on it, she and I had wanted to do something. She came up with the idea of doing something about found family, which seemed like an interesting theme that hadn't been been done yet in these Christmas movies. And then, and then, uh, you know, I was like, well, it would be interesting to just you know turn the relationship on its ear a little bit and make it make it two women. Um, and, um, uh, and ultimately Hallmark was like, yeah, we want to do that. Um, and they did, and they're very supportive, you know, throughout, throughout the process. Um, it was actually shot during the writer's strike, um, you know, in Canada. So they were able to, it was able to be shot then. So I was really glad that ultimately they were able to make it because the script wasn't really finished by the time the strike had started. So, you know, uh, it became a bit of a group effort, you know, at that point, but, uh, yeah. It's really uh, uh, it's going to be on December seventeenth, and then all the all these movies we run probably four or five six times um, after they premiere. So right now we're in uh, kind of the home stretch of of the Hallmark's um, uh, Hallmark's uh, Countdown to Christmas. Um, but uh, you know they run they run Christmas movies twenty four seven. You know, starting from the end of October on. You know, Lifetime they run they're running fewer original new christmas movies this year they i think they had 12 new ones and last year i think they had quite a few more um but they have not regular their regular programming in between it's not all christmas all the time um but hallmark is just you know that's their that's their busy season and uh you know it's really become so successful um and that they've created a you know created a whole genre of uh of movies I, I was fortunate to produce one for them back yeah. in 2002. And a drama. You talked about dramas, you know, yes. like that was totally a drama. Yeah. Totally drama yeah. for the for the viewers who don't know my film. It's called Silent Night. Lin Linda Hamilton plays a German woman who on Christmas Eve 1944 was in the cabin in the Ardennes with her son. They had evacuated out of Aachen uh to get away from the bombing and at that moment german and american combat troops show up on her doorstep and she insists that they leave their weapons outside and come in for a truce and she maintained the truce for 10 hours and uh true story actually happened in fact uh, during his presidency uh ronald reagan went to a cemetery in germany and mentioned the incident as oh. a way of, of bonding between you know over the years between human beings as opposed to foes. And uh, we were honored with four uh, Canadian Academy, Television Academy nominations. I was very pleased with that. Yeah, yeah, it was a good film. Uh, I remember seeing it at a screening, I think on the Paramount lot, was it? Yeah. That we did the screen, yeah. Yeah, yeah fine no, that was great, that was great. Was that, was that a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie? No, no. Yeah, it was just Australia. Australia. But it spoiled me forever because they bought that pitch in April. We shot it in August. It was on the air in December, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can, you know, I, I, I think you could, you know, the way it goes, uh, because they have to space the productions over the course of of, of the year, uh, just to get crews. You know, it's, so many are done in Canada, and like everybody's using all these crews. So you, you know, they can shoot a movie as late as the end of September, beginning of October, get it on for November, December. You know, they they edit as they go along. It's a, it can be a, a relatively, you know, sped up uh, post production schedule, um, and that's kind of how all these places they all these networks and everything to sort of get these movies out as fast as they do um yeah but that was before that uh, silent night was before they kind of entered into the rom-com vein and the you know all of that so it was, it was very true. the funny thing about that movie is we're shooting the uh winter movie in the arden in the summer in montreal so we literally had to make snow in a place that gets a ton of it in the appropriate season, which leads me to mention that when I was reading up on It's a Wonderful Life, all those wonderful Christmas scenes in Bedford Falls were shot during a heat wave. So oh, <laughs> crazy. That's funny. Yeah, in, in Lights, Camera, Christmas, um, are there in the originally... Uh, I had pitched it that they're shooting a, a you know a Christmas movie during the 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 hottest heat wave that's ever that, that, that this, that's ever happened in this town uh and ultimately that got a little lost in the shuffle but 
But it's a funny idea because, you know, it's about what's happening behind the camera and what's happening in front of the camera. What do we see versus what's actually going on in real life, um, which is funny. But in truth, you know, so many of these movies are shot during the summer or are shot in warm weather. And they're wearing, you know, this, the Santa outfits and, you know, the, the uh, you know, the heavy coats and all that and snow's coming down. Um, and it's uh, 90 degrees out. You know, Crazy. The magic of-, Crazy. of course, here we, here we both live in Southern California, where it's hard to get quite into the Christmas spirit when it's 80 degrees out. Right. But, uh, somehow they still hang the Santa and his reindeer above Wilshire and Beverly Drive. Right. I've been right. seeing that ever since the 1950s. And it does get you a little bit in the mood. And of course, the festive Christmas lights at night is a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, we know we should mention there are a million other Christmas movies. Uh, I know that we didn't mention White Christmas. We didn't mention Holiday Inn. There, there are so many of them, but I thought we mentioned some good ones. Yeah, Elf also, which is, you know, has become a perennial with Will Ferrell. That's a, that's, that's a favorite, you know, for sure. Yeah, there Buddy are tons the, of them. Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Elf was really, really fun. And uh, yeah, that what, uh, what year was Elf? That was like in... Was it in the 90s at this point or yeah, early say, 2000s? Yeah, early 2000s. Um, yeah, something like that, yeah. Gary, what are you working on these days? I know you always have a million projects you're working yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I've actually got a lot of, there are a lot of, um, actually other TV movies and Christmas movies I've been pitching lately and trying to trying to get set up at Hallmark and other places. Um, I have a, ser- uh, uh, um, uh, I found a, two very interesting um, uh, series of, of detective books that I'm trying to get set up as as kind of like you know the cozy mysteries trying to get them set up at a few places as as li- limited series I think they're really fun uh, I wrote a, I've written two novels I have a third novel that I just finished uh, that that's out to publishers now so I'm hoping to get some good news about that I've written my first book called The Last Birthday Party um, which is kind of a Hollywood rom com. Uh, I've written the screenplay of that, and that's been out to producers and elsewhere trying to get set up. I, it's a really, really fun story. Um, and uh, I have a second book, The Mother I Never Had, which is more of a it's a family drama. I uh, have not written the script of that, but uh, you know, I, I may, and hopefully there may be a, a theatrical place for that. Uh, and um, uh, you know, you and I uh, tried to work on uh, this play that I wrote called uh, Dinner at the Harbor Reef, all of that. Uh, the la- the the last the last meal that Natalie Wood had uh, before she died and all the craziness that went on at that meal and may- perhaps led to um, you know led led to her death uh, and uh, that's uh, you know it's a play that I'm still trying to get set up and hope that there's a life in it somewhere you know I was just oh, actually no, I, I thought you got into those characters beautifully and another yeah. one of my favorites of yours is a script we tried to set up a few years ago that I still believe in, which is called Jake and Monica's Panic Attack. I know, it's still available. <laughs> still available. It's basically two therapy patients in search of their therapist on their biggest mm-hmm. panic attack of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> thanks. Uh, yeah. I, will, I, I will always be telling that. Well, Gary, this has been wonderful. I should tell our viewers you've been watching the Saturday Night at the Movie Show. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our guest tonight has been Gary Goldstein, who knows a lot about Christmas and is continuing to bring us new Christmas enjoyments. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Steve. Great to talk to you. Had a great time. Thank you so much.